Well, it's good periodically just to pull the stick back and to uh, just kind of see where we've been in the book of Romans. So we're just, you know, we're opening up to, to Romans chapter 7, and, and here we are in the middle of the chapter. And how does that fit in to the bigger picture of what we're looking at? Now, those of you who've been with us for a while, you remember the book opened up by Paul saying he, he couldn't wait. He was eager to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he began doing. Is, is, as he opened up Romans, he's, he's teaching and preaching to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And where did he start? Sin. Where did he start? Condemnation of mankind. And we saw that in, in, the, in the opening chapters, uh, 1 to 3. And then all of a sudden we saw, then the good news came in. The bright light began to shine. And we began to see hope and, and, and the forgiveness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And starting in 321 through chapter 5, he introduced to us the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that's the good news of the gospel, that Christ has done it all. He's paid the price. And through Christ and all who trust in Him through faith, our sins are forgiven through Him, and He gives to us His righteousness, so we have right standing before God. And then when we turn to chapter 6, we began to look at a new section. And this new section turned away from trusting in Christ to be saved to what happens after we trust in Christ in the Christian life. And that introduced to us the doctrine of just or sanctification in chapters we're going to look at 6 through 8. And we're right in the middle of that section on sanctification. And, the, and sanctification is that ongoing indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. It goes on every day where He's progressively making us more and more in the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. So there really are no flatliners in the Christian life. You, you trust it in Christ. By His grace, He saved you. You stand in His righteousness, clothed in His righteousness. And now that you're a Christian, what happens? Do you just kind of go on the way it was before? No, you're growing. You're maturing. You're being sanctified. And that's the progressive work of the Spirit of God. That's what we're looking at now. And so when we come to chapter 7, in the middle of that section on on sanctification, uh, the focus now is particularly on the word law. Where does the law fit into our sanctification? What about the law? And by the law, we're talking about what? Not the ordinances of Cody. We're talking about the the moral law of God, particularly the the Decalogue. What about the law in in our Christian life? What about the Ten Commandments? What place do they have in sanctifying us? Well, do you remember back in verse 5 of chapter 7? You might just look there with me where we, we read this a couple weeks ago. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear the fruit for death. So there is something that Paul said, and uh, you say, well, Paul, what do you mean by that? While we were living in the flesh our sinful passions that were inside of us, were aroused by the law. And what, what effect did it have? Well, we just sin that much more in our members. And, uh, and that, that, that yields death. And so if you read that quite quickly, in cursorily, you might think, well, it sounds like Paul might be saying something like this. The law seems to be just as sinful as sin itself. The law seems to cause sin. And the law seems to cause death. And so that takes us to the objection that one of his readers might have been thinking about as they were reading through 
Romans chapter 7, here's the objection that he's anticipating. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? In light of what we just read. Are we saying then that the law is sin, Paul? Or literally, are we saying, Paul, that the law is sinful? Are you telling us, Paul, that the Torah that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai is somehow bad? It's not good. It's not perfect. It's sinful. Are you saying the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, is sinful? I mean, after all, Paul, do you remember David? Don't you remember what he said about the law of God? It's perfect. It's sweeter than honey. It's finer than gold. Are we talking about the same law, Paul? And and then we have Paul's answer we saw last time. No, no, no. May it never be. Or as we saw from Johnson, you know, are you crazy? Why would you even ask such a question? The law is good. Now, so when we come to verses 7 through 13, particularly 8 through 13, but 7 through 13 that we just read, we're going to see that Paul's going to give us an explanation of why the law is not sinful. He's going to explain to us why the law is good. And we saw the first part of that in verse 7 last week. The law is good for one reason, he said. He spent a whole week looking at it. It's God's diagnostic tool to expose to you that you're a sinner. That's good. That's a good thing. And uh, it's like the spiritual MRI that God gives us, the Ten Commandments, and He holds them up like a mirror in front of you, and you look at them, and you go, wow, I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. I need, I need help. And that's the purpose of the law, to diagnose sin in your life. Without the law, you wouldn't perhaps know about sin except the law that's, that's written in your heart. Today what Paul's going to do is give us a second reason why the law is good. And uh, you might t- be tempted to ask, if the law is good, Paul, how is it then that the law aggravates sin? How can the law be good, you see, he's asking, and still aggravate sin in our life. That doesn't sound like a good thing. And now he's going to give us his answer to that question. Number eight. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. Now he's going to point to the culprit, the reason why the law has the effect of arousing greater sin in our life is not because the law is bad, it's because sin is bad. It's the sin. We're pointing the finger at the wrong culprit. But sin is the culprit. It's not the law. The law is not sinful. But what does he mean when he says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment? And here, sin does not mean, I don't think, individual acts of sin, like, okay, well, I lied today and so I sinned. Or I, you know, I dishonored mom and dad this morning getting ready for church, so I sinned. Not, not individual acts of sin, uh, that's but more than likely speaking more generically about sin, more, more about the sin nature that's within us and, uh, and the power of sin that, that's within us, the, act, the active part of sin that's in us, the force of sin that's in us, the fallen corrupt nature that's in us in general. Speaking of sin in that way. And it's so powerful, we're going to see. And by the way, 
This isn't just some theoretical thing, Paul or you or the Bible. This is you and me. Because of the fall, the sin that's in us is so powerful that it can twist and distort the law of God itself. And it's so active in us from birth that it's actually reigning in us and it's ruling us by nature. It's not like we've got a little problem. We've got a big problem, and it's sin. In fact, in Genesis 6-3, uh, relating to the flood, we see the Lord, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what we're talking about here, that wickedness that's in us every single day of our life, who we are, and it's, it's a force, it's a power within us. Now, what he's going to do, he's going to personify sin for us. And he's going to give it uh, legs and, and a head, and he's going to make it seem like a person, that force, that power that's within us. He's going to attribute to sin some, some human uh, attributes. We're going to see it taking opportunity. It's, it, it's doing something. We see in Genesis 4, 7 where, where, where uh, the Scripture talks to Cain and a warning God gives to Cain about sin. He says, and if you do well, you will not, you will not uh, if you do well, uh, will, you do not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, and here's the picture, sin is crouching at your door. See, I mean, it's like a personification. It's not just breaking the law. It's, it's, it's in you, and it's crouching at the door of your heart, and its desire is contrary to you, and it's going to devour you. It's going to rule over you, and it's ready to pounce. So here, seizing an opportunity, uh, I don't know, some of your notes and some of your study Bibles uh, might try and give a various views of what it means for sin that's within you, to seize an opportunity. Uh, the word here is an interesting one. It, it, it's one that could mean beginning of a journey. So sin wants to begin a journey. He wants to start a journey through the commandments. Uh, another understanding of it is to think of it in terms of a, a beachhead or a, 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 a staging point for a war. Uh, sin is seizing an opportunity, it's taking a beachhead, it's taking a base of operation where it's going to begin to launch out into an attack, an invasion, and a war. That's the imagery that's here. And that's what sin's doing when it encounters the law of God. Think of the Ukrainian war. And think, go back, you know, four or five, six weeks when, it was, when they had these satellite views of all the Russian 150,000 troops, tanks, I mean, artillery, trucks, all lined up, tents. All, you know, they had their stage, their, 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 their base of operation. And was it there just to be there to show it off? No, it was there to do what? To take the next step and invade. And so the picture is one of this, that the, and by the way, the land where they put this uh, base of operation on the border, was that a sinful piece of land? No. What was, the sinful part would be those who would come onto the land with their weapons and with their troops. And, and so the picture is the, the law, the Ten Commandments, is, is that base. And then the, the wicked heart takes that, use it, that land or that, as a base of operation, which is the law of God, 
and to use it to spring forth and invade someone even more so and explode sin into their life. So hopefully you can kind of see the picture that he's talking about here. Sin sees the law, it sees, sees the law, and then it seizes the opportunity to, to uh, use it as a staging place for more sin. Sin sees the law, it sees the commandment, it becomes an opportunity, it provokes itself, it uh, becomes more sinful, and the desire for what is forbidden is fueled by the very prohibition. Now that's what's taking place here. The prohibition comes from where? The law. The law says, thou shalt not, for example. And the heart that it comes to is sinful. And when the sinful heart comes into contact with the moral and the, and the good law of God, it fuels a heart that even wants to break the law that much more. And uh, it resents commandments. It resents anyone telling sin what to do. It has a reflexive action to break the law even more. Let me give you a classic example. Some of you young ones here uh, spring into some of the, something you might identify with this morning. I was going to say rain and rainbows, and then I woke up and it was white outside. So then I had to change my illustration at the last minute, realizing it's not in date. So, but here, but here, here's the example, classic example. You wake up this morning, and, uh, and you're, you know, you're a young person, and, and you said, I'm going to go out and play in the snow. And you look out, and there's all kinds of stuff you can do in the snow. You can make snow angels. You can make snowmen. You can take the sled out and slide down the hill. And you can do just all kinds of things with the snow. And you got your hat on. you got your gloves on. And you're, you're going outside to play in the snow. And then mom just yells out real loud, And by the way, don't throw any snowballs. Well, now when you were leaving the house, you weren't even thinking about snowballs. You were thinking about sleds and snowmen and all kinds of other things you were going to do outside. But now you heard, thou shalt not throw snowballs. So what does sin do that's inside of us? Well, it takes the law as a staging area to, to rile itself up and get ready to invade us with more sin. And so inside of every one of us, this, this is the evidence that you're a sinner because this is how you respond. Oh, yeah? We'll see about that. And pretty soon, I mean, you find a nice big mound of snow, and it's wet, and it sticks together. It makes really hard snowballs, and your sister comes out, and you haul that thing off, and you throw it, and slap her right upside the head with a snowball, and all of a sudden, you're what? You're in trouble. You broke the law. But the law has a way. This is what the Ten Commandments do. It has a way of stirring up within us a desire to do what? to break the law even more. And uh, that's, that, that reveals the, the, the sinful heart. Uh, let me give you another example. The seventh commandment says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay? Tenth commandment says, Thou shalt not covet. Now those two are very co- kind of cro- closely related. You can do both covet someone and commit adultery. So you can see how those two can fit together. I was reading this last week, and I've never heard of this before, but I'm not surprised, that there was something called Fortunata Syndrome. Anybody hear that? Fortunata Syndrome. 
Okay, it's not on anybody's list I can see, but there's, there was a book written by a Spanish author. His name was Benito Galdos, and he wrote several novels, and one of them was Fortunet and Jacinta. So that was the name of the, the, the novel. They were the main characters in the novel, and this was the theme of the novel, that uh, Fortunata, she always wanted someone else's husband. So if someone else, some friend or some gal had a, had a husband, she wanted that husband. And all of, her gal, all of her friends were married, and she was going after all the men who were married to her, to her uh, friends. Try and take their husbands away. And she suffered from a problem, obviously. And uh, inside, she was incited. You know, that whole idea of a forbidden fruit, and you want it even more. And, uh, you know, these men are married to another woman. I, I, I want them. The law, you see, was stirring up in her a desire for breaking the law rather than restraining her conduct. In fact, there's even some studies that have been done secularly in the area of uh, psychology. And, and one of them was this. They, to show that this is beyond a novel, something that actually exists, we want someone that we can't have. We want someone who's, having, who's already married to someone else or going out with somebody else, and our hearts even stirred more by thou shalt not. It inflames us. And so one of the studies that was done in one of the major universities is that they, uh, they took a, gr- a group of college women and they got a picture of a really handsome man. And uh, they showed the picture to all the women. And they said, by the way, this, this is a man who is uh, uh, a married man. Are you attracted to him or are you not attracted to him? And they passed it to all the women. Ninety percent of the, of the women said they were attracted to this man who was married. And then they, they took another picture of another attractive man. And they said, by the way, this man's single. I want you to, are you attracted to this man or not? He's a single guy. Fifty-seven percent said that they were attracted to him. And, 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 and so they, they label this a syndrome. It's, a, it's a, called the Fortunata syndrome that you're attracted to a situation where you're forbidden to go. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about. But see, that's psychology. But what psychology sometimes does is it realizes it sees something that's true in the spiritual realm, but they don't have spiritual terminology to apply to it. They don't understand God. They don't understand sin. So they try and define what it is and call it a syndrome. But really what it is is a sin syndrome. And it's a sin syndrome that, uh, that you say, I can't have that person because he or she belongs to someone else. So I want him that much more. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. And by the way, that's not true love. That's an obsession that really comes from a a form of idolatry. It is funny how the unbelieving world likes to recognize theological truth and then take it and and redefine it. Uh, But uh, what we have here is the issue is sin. The issue is God. The issue is a sinful heart. It's an internal problem. But it is true and it is real. And by the way, this isn't just true. It's true of all of us. This is what sin does in our heart when it is confronted with the law of God. It stirs up more sin. So there's Paul's picture. The law is not bad. The law is not sinful. Uh, When the law comes into a person's heart, 
sin within that heart takes opportunity to use it as a staging area for more sin and incites sin, and then pretty soon an invasion of sin takes place in the heart. So here's the question, why? Why is it the law makes sin more attractive? What, what, what's the dynamic there? Why is it when you say no to someone, they want to do something even more? And I think it's because breaking the law is, 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 uh, is forbidden. And it's tantalizing to the sin that's within us. That's what sin does. Sin's just being sin. And it's true in your life, it's true in my life. I mean, I mean, we're all tempted. You know, don't pick the daisies. What do we want to do? Pick a daisy. Don't step on the grass. What do you want to do? Well, I can't, I'll show them. I'll put my foot on the grass. Or let's even be a little bit more contemporary. Put your mask on before you come in the store. Oh, no. You're not going to tell me what to do. Where, where does that come from? That comes from a heart. A heart that reacts against being told yes or being told no. And be, when exposed to the law. So sin knows that which is off limits. It's alluring and it seizes the opportunity. So what does it bring to pass in Paul's life? Well, look what he says. It produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So here I was, just a good Pharisee, had a sinful heart. I, was in, I encountered the law of God, which is thou shalt not covet. And what did it do in me when it happened? It produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And again, Paul's referring back to the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet. When the law against coveting impressed on his heart, uh, it, it got him. And it stirred it up and it created all kinds of a storm of wanting to sin more. And he said there was all kinds of coveting. Now, if you read the Tenth Commandment, there's just not one kind of coveting. It doesn't just say thou shalt not covet, does it? Do you remember what the Tenth Commandment says? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. What else? Huh? Animals, manservants, maidservants, huh? Houses, or anything else they have. <laughs> so, in other words, we're not to covet anything. And what Paul's saying here is it produced in me, when this happened to me, all kinds of covetousness. And he doesn't say what it was, what kind of things were incited in him, but he, you know, he began to covet things he didn't even know he coveted. I coveted things I never knew existed. Maybe he was coveting the approval of other people and his self-righteous attitude. I didn't realize I was coveting. I thought I was being a good Pharisee. Or maybe it, it, it convicted him and showed him that uh, now all of a sudden he's, he's coveting self-righteousness. Or maybe he had adulterous thoughts. I don't know what was going on in his mind. He doesn't tell us. Here's the point. But it's, it incited in him all kinds of coveting. And then he explains... You've got to stay with me. You're going to follow this. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And again, Paul's speaking autobiographically here. He's speaking about himself, his own experience. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And Paul's giving us a peek back before he was saved, before you know, the Acts 9 conversion that he talks about, before he was, he was a Christian. Apart from the law back then, Sin lies dead. Uh, now, what does that mean? Apart from the law. I mean, when was Paul ever apart from the law? Uh, I don't know. He, 
he was always with the law. He, he was born with the law. He had parents that taught him the law. I mean, if, if they had ABC books of the law of God, I'm sure his mom was reading that to him when he was three years old. He was learning the law. But at some time, he describes his past life before he was a Christian, he was apart from the law. And I believe the idea is this. He's, he's living in a time, there was a time in his life when the law wasn't doing its work within him. And uh, it seemed like it wasn't, it wasn't a part of him doing something in his life. It wasn't, he wasn't experiencing the, the, the presence of the law. Before the law came to him, it, it, it was just there. It was dormant. And, uh, and then you know what happens sometimes? And we're talking about this in Sunday school this morning is then the Holy Spirit comes and illuminates the law and illuminates the Word and makes it alive in the heart. And now you see things you never saw before. And that's what happened to him. All of a sudden, he began to see in the law things he never saw before, and he was stirred up apart from the law. The law wasn't doing what it was intended to do. It was dormant in him. So I believe there wasn't any time where Paul didn't know the law. He knew the law all of his life. He knew the commandments. He knew the Tenth Commandment. This wasn't a surprise to him. However, he was not aware of what the implications were and what it meant to him and, and all the things that apparently God brought to his understanding. He was too busy being proud and self-righteous, carrying out all the rest of the law. And before the law came to him, that back in those days, he said, sin lay dead in me. It was there, but it was dormant. It, it, it was there, sin was in me, but uh, I wasn't aware of it. In fact, I thought I was a pretty good, pretty good person. But when the, when the law of coveting came, then, then things changed. And uh, so do you, see, do you see sin the way Paul sees sin in his life? Do you see sin in your life this way? In other words, think about this personally. Do you see sin in your life as not just, oh, I broke this rule and therefore I sinned, but by nature, by birth, by, your, by, by the wickedness that mars your heart? which affects your motives, your mind, it affects your, your will, your, your words. You're corrupt, you're rotten on the inside before you were a Christian. That's who you were. Uh, and then how does sin then use the law as a base of operation, as a starting point? Well, then the law comes to us and begins to arouse in us more rebellion. And uh, we, we were born sinners, rebels against God. And this is why many of us, uh, before we're saved, and maybe some of you who aren't, who aren't Christians here today, generally we kind of think of ourselves as pretty good people. And, you know, we, we don't break most of the laws of God. And therefore we don't see ourselves as sinful as we really are. And so what's happening is the sin is in your heart dormant. It's dormant in there. It's there, it's working, but you're not sensing it. You're, you're sensing you're a good person. But you see, then when it comes into contact with the law, the law has a way of then of causing it to explode, and then you begin to do more and more evil things because the law came to you. And then when you do more and more evil things, you realize you're falling short, you're falling short, and it drives you, Lord willing, to Christ. The law comes to a man, the spirit of rebellion is aroused. 
What do you mean, thou shalt not? What do you mean, submit to God, the will, His will for my life? And when sin engages the law, it enrages the heart. It enrages more sin. And hopefully we see this every day. We see it on the news. We see this every place we look. We'll see it more in our own life as we personalize these truths. But why is it today, the Bible says, thou shalt not, what, steal, okay? You're not to steal. Now, the laws of the land have taken the moral law of God and applied them into various statutes and ordinances. So we have laws against shoplifting, right? We have laws against stealing, breaking in after, after dark and breaking and entering. And so we have all these laws in our land, which are a reflection of the big law, thou shalt not steal. But what happens when a culture hears the law of God? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not shoplift. Well, that stirs up in the heart of many people. You know what? I'll show you. This is what sin says. I can really steal. In fact, I'll take a sledgehammer and I'll go out and I'll start breaking some, some countertops. And I'm going to start filling things up with diamonds and jewels and watches and, 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 and broad daylight. I don't care. Because I'm aroused to steal even more because of the law of God. I saw a guy the other day. He, he actually drove a, a, a bicycle. Maybe you saw this on the news. He actually drove a bicycle into a Walgreens store with a big black bag. And he loaded this bag up so heavy he couldn't carry it. So he put it on the handlebars and he just drove everything right out the store, right out the front door. That's the, the heart that says, you know what? You can say thou shalt not steal, but the more you tell me, the more I want to steal, the more I want to shoplift. And even then, then when the penalty comes down upon you, then, then the heart rages even more against the penalty, how unfair it is. Then the cops and the stores become the bad guys and the criminals become the victims and everything becomes upside down. There's something about being told no that makes us want to do yes. And what is that? It's the sin that's within us. Uh, whether it's not walking on the grass, whatever it is. And how does the law incite more sin? By putting ideas in our minds that were not there before. It's like throwing wood on the fire. Before the law of coveting come, Paul says he might not have ever known about coveting. It was off his radar. But then once he knew about it, then, then it stirred it up and he began to see it everywhere in his life. Suddenly the law incites the fallen imagination and the sins within make you want to do the very thing the law prohibits you from doing. Now, let me give you another illustration. There's a brand new law in the state of Florida, HB 1557. The bill bans classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity to kindergartners through the third grade. And most of us would say, amen, right? That's a good law. Is the law sinful? Is that law sinful? No, it's not. In fact, it's, it's a good law. Uh, that any instruction on those topics cannot occur in a manner that is not age, not age appropriate or develop, developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. 
And so all of us would hear that. Hopefully all of us would. If not, talk to me afterwards because we'd go, amen, that's a good law. You know, we don't want to be teaching kindergartners about gender identification. It's a good law. But here's what can happen. Do you see how a law like that can actually generate into the children hearts of even more sin? Do you see how, for example, a, a child could, could hear about this law and, or they could talk about it in class and they said, wait a minute, teacher, mom, dad, what's gender identification? What's, what is uh, sexual orientation? I mean, most five-year-olds are going to be thinking in terms of, you know, Tonka trucks and dolls and, and just playing and having fun and being kids. Then the law comes. Then the law says, thou shalt not. And all of a sudden, it's explained to the child. And now there's, there's a springboard. There, there's a base of operation for this to stir up in the heart of the child more and more sins and, and imaginations and ideas that never existed before. Because sin was laying dormant. Now, I'm not saying we don't make laws. Laws are good. Sin is bad. So we want to do what God wants us to do. And so, but uh, do you see how the very law itself can provoke thoughts and ideas that the sinful nature can provoke sinful thoughts and it leads to more and more sin? Uh, if that's the case, why not ditch the law? You say, well, let's do away with laws if it stirs up more sin. Well, we're not called to do that. In fact, the law is good. It's perfect. In fact, it's not even the point that we're looking at. The law diagnoses sin. It points to Christ. And the idea is sin is dormant without a command. When the command comes, it stirs it up. We see it. And hopefully that, too, will drive us to Christ. Look what Paul says in verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law. Again, he's going back before he was saved. And back then I was alive when I was apart from the law, which we just looked at. In other words, he thought he was alive apart from the law. He seemed like he was alive. He wasn't alive. He wasn't spiritually alive, was he? He wasn't wasn't even converted at that point. So it was not spiritual life, but he felt alive can't mean spiritually alive until he was converted. This is pre-salvation. Calvin says this, Paul didn't know the true demands of the law at that time in his life. He thought he was alive. Before the Ten Commandments came to him and, and with a heartfelt meaning, Paul thought he was doing the right things. He was doing a bang-up job for God. God's pleased with him, and he felt alive as a Pharisee. But after all, he was a Pharisee. And it was external, and it was self-righteous, and it was religious. He didn't know the, the, the desperate need of his own heart. He knew he hadn't killed anybody. He knew he hadn't committed adultery. He knew that he was a pretty good guy, and he didn't lie. And, and he also knew that he probably kept the Sabbath perfectly and worshipped God as he commanded. He felt alive, but he didn't realize. But inside, he was really what? He was dead. And that's the deceitfulness of sin. It makes you feel alive when, in fact, you're dead, when you're looking at external religiosity. But when the commandment came, singular, that is the Tenth Commandment, the law, thou shalt not covet, not commandments in general, when that last commandment finally came to me, 
The secret motives of my heart were revealed, and I saw myself as I really was. And it stirred up even more and more coveting, which scared me. I never saw that before in the Bible. When the Holy Spirit all of a sudden came, the commandment came, and then he says, sin came alive and died. And I died. So what, he felt alive, but then when he was convicted by the, by the law, sin came alive, and then he said, I died. There was victory at that point. He realized that he wasn't alive, that uh, sin came alive, and I died. And by the way, that's where we need to find ourselves, is, is if we're going to come to Christ, you're going to have to reach a point by the grace of God that you see yourself as dead. You're not going to reach out for life with, 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 uh, to Christ unless you see yourself first as dead. And that's what the law did with Paul. It showed him he thought he was alive, but when I, when I finally came to the conclusion by the conviction of my heart against, against coveting, I died. I was deceived all those years, he's saying. Sin deceived me. I was deluded. I was so righteous. And then the law came, and then I died. Sin came alive, and I died. That's Paul. Is that you? Is that me? Have we reached a point in our life where we've seen ourselves as sinners, and, and it was so revealed to us the wickedness of our own heart, and we realized that we, we died? We're dead spiritually. We need help spiritually. We need life if we're going to move through this world into the world to come. And that life comes through Christ. Verse 10, And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. I used to think I was a good guy. I used to, thought I, I used to think I was alive. But then I was deluded and I realized I was powerless and dead. Verse 11, for sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So sin made its beachhead. It killed me. I was deceived. Sin deceived me, not the law. I was deceived. thought I could obey the law, but I couldn't. And I found out, thinking I was alive, I was dead. The law showed me my sin. The law stirred up more sin pulled out the rug from underneath me and showed me that I was dead. Now, we can find some application here, I think, in, in the church today and even in families today as well. In, in church today, we can find the application in, in churches that would emphasize legalism in the sense of keeping the law to be, have right favor with God. And, you know, I'm thinking of Christians, for example, where their churches might give them a list of ten do's and don'ts. You don't play cards, you don't smoke, you don't go to movie, I don't know, whatever the ten things are. And so you got the, ten, the list of ten, and then you got the Word of God. And they always choose the ten that you're able to do. Anyone, a Mormon, a, a, a Muslim could not smoke. A Muslim could uh, you know, just go through the list, not dance or whatever. So they always choose the ten that you can do. But they never deal with the heart. And they never deal with the sin that's within inside. And so they set up a religiosity of externalism. And then you, like Paul was before he was saved, you walk around 
thinking you're alive spiritually. You walk around thinking that, you're, you're, uh, that, that there's no sin because you're keeping the law of God or you're keeping the law of man. In fact, what the law should do for you is this. It comes into your presence and it shows you that it stirs up more sin. And as it stirs up more sin, you realize, I'm dead and I need Christ. So we have to be careful that we don't fall into the same, same place that Paul was before he was converted. This can, the same thing, let me just apply it more specifically to family situations and young children growing up in Christian homes. Because you can be a young child growing up in a Christian home where, like Paul, I mean, you were introduced with the ABCs of, of, of the attributes of God, or, you know, and so that was read to you as a child. And maybe you were taught at home or homeschooled or went to a, a Christian school and you were catechized at home and as part of family worship. And you're always in church worshiping and, and praising God with your parents. And, and you know what? You, you never really did the things that, you know, the other kids did. The bad kids, you know, the bad kids are the ones that are out there swearing and using all kinds of profanity. They're the ones that are standing on the street corners smoking or doing drugs. I'm not like that. And so you, you grow up, and all of a sudden you're 16, 17, 18 years old, and you grow up, and you think like Paul did, that, you know what, I was, I'm alive, because look what's happening in my life. But it's external religion that eventually you hopefully, by God's grace, see you're dead. You've got to realize that. Young people, you have to come to a point where you realize you're dead because of the sin that's within you. You can't keep the law of God. And, and, and all that outside stuff, all that religiosity is just that. And your heart needs to be revealed and you need to see yourself for what you really are, dead. Our opening question was this. Is the law sinful? And the answer was absolutely not. No, no, no. It's good. Because the more I see the, the law, the more I realize that there's sin within me that, that, that shows me I, need, I have a need for Christ. The first diagnosis of sin is, is a knowledge of sin. If it's good, why does it seem that it produces more and more sin? It doesn't. The law doesn't produce more and more sin. What produces more sin? Sin. It's sin interacting with the law. I don't know if this... I, I shouldn't surprise say this, but I will. Um... I was trying to work, I worked a lot on an illustration that I'm, I'm going to use even though I said I wasn't going to use it. And that is the whole COVID virus thing. The sin is the virus. But it's just going around looking for a what? A host that it can glom onto. And once it gloms onto the host, it just explodes and kills the host. So I, I haven't, I don't know if that works this way out theologically or not, but that's the imagery that came to my mind. That's what we have going on here, is that you have sin encountering the law, which is the, the host. Are you, is the person himself sick before the, the virus hits you? No. You're good. So, you know, I realize you're good. But then all of a sudden, the virus gloms onto you, gloms onto your nose, gets into your throat, and that's all it needs. And now it's going to do what? Make more and more and more sickness in you and eventually death. That's what the law does. And so is the body what's, what's wicked? No, what's wicked is the virus, so to speak. 
And the virus is looking for a host to hold on to, which is applying it would be the law of God. Does that make sense? I don't know. I, I just wrestled with that all week. I'm not sure that stands on all fours, but it sure made sense to me anyway, so I'll just throw that out for you today. Um, the law is not sinful, in fact. It closes with this reminder, verse 12. In case we didn't know, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy. And it's righteous. And it's good. Amen. The law, it's, it's re- revelation. It reveals God's character, the law does. You look at the law and you see the face of God. He's holy. He's righteous. He's good. And the law is holy, righteous. And we're going to see how important that is in our Christian life that we realize that because part of our sanctification is going to be living out the law in our life. And then Paul raises, he couldn't help it. He has one last objection, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? If the law is good, can the law which is good bring death to me? And the answer is what? Again, no, 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 by no means. Or as Johnson would say, are you crazy? It was sin producing death in me through what is good. See, using the law and producing death in me. So maybe the COVID illustration does work through here. I don't know. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And all this works its way out so that through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Why God allows the law to do this is so that you might come to a point in your life where you can see in you, not in Paul, not in the neighbor, not in the guy on TV, riding the bicycle through Walgreens, but in you can you see, listen carefully, the sinfulness of sin. Not a little dribble-dabble of sin here and there, but can you see within yourself the sinfulness of sin? Because... If we're to live, we must know that we're dead. We must seek after life. We must be brought to see the sinfulness of sin. If I could point you to a chapter to read this week on this that would just really echo this, this home in greater detail is read the first chapter of Holiness by J.C. Ryle. You can find it online or you might have a copy yourself or I can loan you a copy. But the whole chapter is really on the sinfulness of sin to help us see that we need to know the sinfulness of sin. Not just know sin, but the sinfulness of sin. He writes, The disease may be veiled under a, a thin coating of courtesy and, and politeness and good manners and, and outward decorum, but it lies deep down inside your constitution of your very being. Without a knowledge of the sinfulness of sin, young people, you'll never know what it means to come to Christ and be justified through faith in Him. You won't come to Christ through justification as long as you think there's something good in you. And sanctification, I mean, we need to know if we're going to grow in grace and we're going to be sanctified, the sinfulness of sin that's even in our own life as Christians. We won't flee to the only one who can bring life and change. Let's remember the law is is good, it's a delight. As we worship God, let's worship Him as the one who gave us that law for our good. Let's pray. And Father, we thank You again as we close today. Uh, Lord, uh, 
Who would have ever guessed that the Ten Commandments could be a very means that would stir up within our own sinful hearts greater wickedness? Oh, Lord, a heart that would just defy you and say, oh, yeah, I can do it. I don't care what you say is a wicked heart. It's one that we all share in is because of our relationship to Adam. And I pray you do for all of us like you did with, with, with Paul. Lord, we see the deceit that's there. Help us to see ourselves as we are, as you see us. That might lead us to Christ, the only one who can deliver us and heal us from our sin. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.